Welcome to Terrible, the podcast where two friends discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare themselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast. Marie, on the other hand, has recently delved into all that is true crime. We both believe that once you watch or listen to your first case, there's no going back. So let's do this. Just before we get started, we want to mention that we do have a merch store. There's lots of great stuff, so if you guys want to check it out and support the show, you can go on Etsy and look us up at Terrible True Crime. And the last thing is that it really helps when you rate the show and leave a review or a comment wherever you listen. All right, let's get into some updates. So we just recorded our last episode a few days ago, so there's not too much to say other than the weather was really nice over the weekend. It got up to 20 degrees here on Friday, which was like wow, amazing. But now it's dipping back down, so it's <laughs> it's going to be real cold this week. So it's always depressing when it gets really hot and then you're thinking like, okay, the warm weather's coming and then it goes right back down to like below zero. Yeah. And then other than that, I went to a local bar last night and there was some live music and I don't know I just I love live music and just be sitting at a bar with a drink and friends and listening to the music and singing along when you know some of the lyrics it was just really nice live bands are like such good vibes the bar here it's called Sorso and they have live music going on all the time so like several times uh, a week and they even have kind of an open mic night which I've never been to but I think would be <laughs> that would be so cool. cool oh my god yeah yeah, yeah but I it's just really fun when like local bars like put an effort to do stuff like that like yeah it's cool uh, like renee uh, mentioned it's been nice weather so uh since i got zoe in december it's been full of snow and it's way too cold for her to go out um like when we got her she was literally one and a half pounds so she could not go in the snow or the cold weather but since it's been sunnier and a little bit warmer i just kind of put a sweater on her and take her into the backyard and she absolutely loves it at first she was like terrified and just like froze and stood there and didn't want to move so I like sat down with her for like five minutes and then she like slowly started to wander and like make her way into the grass and then Aww. she yeah and then she pooped on the grass and I was like oh my god her first poop outside like, it's so exciting it's so weird like first of all I think we have to remind everyone that you have a teacup chihuahua yes <laughs> yes but like the the idea that you get a puppy and then she can't actually go outside and yeah. you have to train her with like the pee pads because she's so tiny and fragile that she won't be able to tough the winter even for like five minutes is literally and like tucker was out there with her and it was just like so cute she was running around smelling everything and like tucker always brings in branches and stuff from outside when he comes inside like (laughs) it just sticks on his fur and she'll eat she'll try to eat those and digest them but when she goes outside she's like sniffing everything she doesn't eat anything so i'm like okay good good because that could be dangerous (laughs) that is good because ollie puts everything in his mouth like everything we yeah. go for walks and we're just constantly going leave it leave it yeah. leave it and he just like opens his mouth and like drops whatever he has Aww, in his mouth but he actually drops it yes he does wow. but then it, there's like a 10 second period before mm-hmm. he picks something else up yeah <laughs> yeah that's like tucker his whole life he still eats everything and anything outside do you know how expensive this vet bill is gonna be just because he wanted to chew on a rock like- well that's the thing once when tucker was like maybe like three years old or something we brought him to the vet for something else 
maybe like a yearly checkup or something. And then we're like, yeah, so like he eats branches a lot. And she's like, what do you mean he eats? Like he's, he eats them and then spits them out. I'm like, no, he swallows the branches as he eats them. And yeah. she's like, she's like, oh my God, I'm surprised he hasn't like had to get like emergency like surgery. Or yeah, yeah. Or like one of them don't, doesn't pierce his intestine. I'm like, right now he's like almost 11 and he's never had an issue with it, but <laughs> Just constipation. <laughs> yeah. Just, well, backed up because of all the branches. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. This week, we are covering cases from the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. In this episode, we will cover five different cases out of Saskatchewan. We mentioned this in our last episode in this series, but I think it's important to say that we are not experts on this subject. I do a lot of research when covering the cases on this show, but we might and probably will make some mistakes as we go. There's also very little information available about some of these cases, so we welcome any feedback or criticism and hope to continue and grow and learn as allies. We just want to use this platform to tell the stories of those we feel are not getting the attention they should be. So I hope everyone is aware, but in case you are not, missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada is a big problem. In episode 5, I gave some statistics that I won't go over again, but if you're curious and haven't listened yet, in that episode we cover three cases out of Alberta. The disappearance of Shelley Denae, the disappearance of Roxanne Marie Isidore, and the murder of Justin Simone Cochran. The sources for this week's case are several articles from CBC under the Missing and Murdered, the Unsolved Cases of Indigenous Women and Girls, the Regina Police, the Native Women's Association of Canada, the Saskatchewan Association of Chief of Police and Missing Persons Database, Justice for Native Women, lookingofmaps.com, and then an article from the Aboriginal Multimedia Society. The first case we are discussing today is the one of Danita Faith Big Eagle. Danita was born in Arcola, Saskatchewan on March 6th of 1984. On February of 2007, she was 22 years old and a mother of two. Her kids were named Cassidy and Talon. Danita is described as a quiet and happy child from the Ocean Man First Nation. She loved movies and music. She liked watching her sisters dance and she was the youngest of six children. Danita was the happiest when her family was all together. She rarely left Regina but was known to frequent the downtown area. Danita had had a hard childhood. She was put on Redland early on for hyperactivity. This next quote is from the Natives Women's Association of Canada. They wrote an article about Danita and interviewed her mother. Danita's personality changed immediately after going on the medication. She became focused, outgoing, and her school grades improved significantly. But not all of the effects of this medication were positive. As she got older, Danita began to express feelings of hopelessness regarding her use of Ritalin. Diane says Danita started to change at about 17. She didn't want to be dependent on the stuff. She said, I can never be this or I can never be that because they're going to say I'm a drug addict because of these pills. Although doctors reassured Diane that her daughter would have no problems detoxifying, that was not the case. Danita told her mother that she could not live without Ritalin. Diane is sure that Ritalin is what turned Danita into a drug addict. So at this point in her life, it sounds like around 17 years old, things are kind of going downhill for Danita. Um, she's struggling with drug addiction, which I think is a very familiar concept that we've discussed in the previous episode in this series as well. Her mom, Diane, is also interviewed in in the CBC article and she says like I would tell her why do you want to ruin your life by drinking why don't you want to go to school and she would say well you used to do it too and I used to wonder why you did it now it's my turn and I told her you know don't take too long because you could turn into an alcoholic and turn into an addict I said I know from experience you're missing out on your kids lives and she said mom 
I won't always be like this. Around this time is also when Danita began to date a new boy. It's reported that this man was abusive towards her. Her mom believes that the relationship was unhealthy, and a large part of that was because Danita's boyfriend was also on Ritalin. Danita had her daughter Cassidy when she was 18 years old. She battled with addiction through her pregnancy, but it's reported that she had a really strong bond with her daughter. She then had a son named Talon. When her addiction got challenging, her mom Diane would step in to help with the kids. Before she disappeared, Diana was trying to reach out for help. I don't know why, but I think Talon's like kind of a cute kid name. I was gonna say that's such a cute kid name, Talon. Yeah, yeah I've never I heard really it like it. No, it's, it's cute. so cute. I thought the same thing. She was last seen in Regina on February 11th, 2007, on the 800 block of Victoria Avenue. Diane was disappointed when Danita didn't show up for a visit with her kids. Diane checked all of her daughter's usual hangout spots and spoke to some of her peers, but no one had seen Danita. It was abnormal for Danita not to contact her mom. Diane says her neighbors told her that Danita was grabbed by men driving a black SUV. From right in front of my house. I went to the police and I went and told them. I couldn't live there anymore. Like when she first went missing, I stayed by the phone and waited for her for over three months. Diane reported Danita missing to the Regina Police Service on February 14th of 2007. It's reported that nothing was done immediately. The police told Diane that it was likely Danita was out partying and that Diane would find her daughter before they would. Unfortunately, I think this is a response that a lot of families get, especially if their loved one was dealing with or battling any kind of addiction, because, you know, it, it does happen where people who are struggling with addiction do disappear for a couple of days and pop back up. But I think what we hear, what resonates the most in these stories is the family members say like, no, this time is different. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's not, she's done this before, but maybe she's done it this way or that way. But this time it's obvious that something is really wrong. Yeah. And sometimes it's like that mother instinct, you know, you just know yes. something's wrong, you know, something's up with your daughter. So I'm sure that must have been so hard for her to try to get some help and nothing was done like right then and there. In 2008, there were reports that Danita may have been seen in Manitoba. Diane lost count of the amount of time she traveled to Winnipeg to look for her daughter. Diane was frustrated at the lack of police involvement. And she said, I was being sent on wild goose chases. Like, why was I doing their job? Obviously, Diane is a super mom. You know, she's putting herself out there and she's really kind of investigating every lead that she's getting from from the community or from people that are, you know, maybe seeing missing posters or are aware that she's that she's missing from her family. So it's pretty amazing what she's doing. But like, I'm sure emotionally exhausting because you're already like so upset that your child's missing mm. and then you're probably spending all your free time like investigating and like she said being sent on wild goose chases yeah that kind of just becomes her life because i'm sure she can't stop thinking about especially knowing her that she's not necessarily getting as much help as she would like i'm sure it puts more pressure on her to even do more diane discovered that danita had been seen at least three times since february 11th the first time she was seen was in Winnipeg, where a man and a woman said Danita was at the Manwin Hotel. Danita had introduced herself by the name Tanya Duck. When Diane thought back to the use of the alias, she recalled that Danita liked the name Tanya and that Danita's father's nickname was John Duck. During another sighting, two women from Broadview, Saskatchewan, say that they met Danita at the Manwin Hotel and she introduced herself as Danita Big Eagle. So I feel like this this kind of gives it more credibility, the fact that two different sets of people are seeing her at the same location. They didn't think much of it until they saw Denise's missing poster at the gas station. So again, thankfully there was missing posters up and that obviously really helps for any kind of tips or leads. Delina was last seen 
for the third time at the Coachman Hotel in Regina. These tips were encouraging for the family, but they took a toll on Diane, like we mentioned. She would personally follow up on each and every one, equally trying to rule out the false reports or the rumors, and then, you know, kind of investigate and go forward with things that seemed legitimate. Obviously, as time went on, this got harder and harder. Less and less people um, were seeing Danita's missing posters. They were either taken down or replaced by others, but Diane didn't give up. She kept searching. Diane doesn't really keep in touch with the police anymore. They've actually even mocked her in the past because she kept bringing tips forward from people who told her things on the streets. I guess they weren't thinking that these could be anything legitimate or that these would lead to anything because it seems like they kind of brushed her off. It's really hurtful. I feel like I feel like it's one thing to like take the information she has and just take it. Yes. Like instead of just being like no like I don't want it like we won't do anything with it like just take it. And that's literally what the police is there for right like you think like if I need help I will call 911 if if my daughter goes missing, if I I don't know, if I get into a car accident. You you just think like this is the people that are supposed to be there for you when you need them the most and when you're being completely ignored like this, mm-hmm. where do you turn? Like where yeah. do you go? Diane said that she wants the stories of these women and girls to be shared. Because some of the girls are trusting and they don't realize there are predators out there. They think these guys are there to treat them nice and maybe buy them a beer, but it's a way to grab them and take them. Danita's family was obviously very desperate to find her. They even looked to their own people for support. The chief of her community, a medicine man, and herself, Diane, phoned Chief Connie Big Eagle to ask for help and to let her know that the police did not believe that Danita was missing. The chief was aware of Danita's disappearance and immediately began to collect relevant information from Diane regarding Danita's last known whereabouts and the responses Diane received from police. It's reported that the chief took this very seriously. Danita's father, Doug, is sick over his daughter's disappearance. He also went to see a medicine man or a healer who reassured him that Danita is fine. The medicine man could see Danita and he said she will eventually come home. Obviously, we hope he's right and we hope this is true. So, Danita was last seen on February 11, 2007 in Regina, Saskatchewan. She was 22 years old at the time. She is from Aboriginal descent and she is 5'6", 110 pounds. She had black short hair that was straight and brown eyes. She had a tattoo of a happy face and the letter D on the web of her left hand and a four-inch scar on her forehead, possibly shaved eyebrows. The clothing she was wearing at the time of her disappearance were a black quilted parka with a drawstring waist, a black toque, a black t-shirt, blue jeans, and white shoes. Anyone with any information regarding Danita Faith Big Eagle is asked to contact the Regina Police Service at 306-777-6500 or call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. The second case we are talking about today is the case of Edna Smith. She was born August 19th of 1959. In October of 1983, Edna was 24 years old. She came from a large family of 12 children. She's described as an angel, as funny with a good sense of humor, and as someone who's very generous. When she was young, she spent a lot of time with her siblings and babysitting the kids around the neighborhood. It's reported that she was great with children. She had planned to go camping with her boyfriend and sister-in-law near East Trout Lake, Saskatchewan. Her brother James Smith said there was something unusual about Edna's demeanor as the trio were leaving that morning. I think there was some anxiety going out on that last trip. 
She was unusually quiet, gathering up supplies. He remembers when Edna left their house in Muskode. It was a crisp fall day with no clouds in the sky. He recalled sitting at the end of the family's kitchen table, watching Edna pack her clothes for the trip out to East Trout Lake. It's reported that Edna camped pretty often, maybe a couple times a year or even more, but unfortunately she would never come home from this camping trip. A boat that the trio had previously used was found in the water capsized in the lake. Saskatoon RCMP suspected that all three individuals had drowned. A search party found Edna's boyfriend and his sister, but Edna has never been found. So basically near where they were camping, I guess they had brought a boat with them. They put the boat out on the lake, they all got in the boat, and all we know is that the boat was found flipped over and it's suspected that all three of them drowned. And they weren't able to find her. No. So they found weird. two out of the three bodies and were never able to find Edna. And it's also just weird to me that people that are used to camping probably know how to swim are getting in this boat and it's okay like for whatever reason it flips over let's say but for all three of them to have died or for two that have died and drowned and one to be missing like it's all very strange yeah and like obviously people can do as they want but like you're supposed to have life jackets at least in the boat (laughs) so yeah yeah it just it this is a very suspicious mm-hmm. case to me yeah james edna's brother told cbc that it looked like the boat had been shot at but he didn't have many details about his sister's case he said he wished he could have done more a timeline of events would be nice he said adding that he'd like to know if there were any suspects in the boat shooting so it seems like now we're getting a bit more information but the boat was shot at so that could be the reason why it capsized and flipped over But again, to me, like, there's a lot of missing information here. The last time the police contacted the family was over a decade ago. James said that Edna's dad took the disappearance really hard. James remembers waking up early one morning and seeing their father crying at the kitchen table, looking outside. Obviously, this is, you know, very tragic for a family. It's not directly Edna's family that were the boyfriend and the sister-in-law, but I'm sure they could have been close and they're losing them. And then just, like, the whole question mark around it all, like... Why did the boat capsize? Why did the two others drown? And where is Edna? Like, it's very strange. And why was the boat being shot at? Right? This next quote is from James. We organized a few searches for her. We rounded up 10 or so people from the reserve. It's so hard not to, like, compare these cases, but when you think about the Ardeth Wood case Mm -hmm. and everything, who was a white woman living in Ottawa and she went missing, and not only did the entire city basically start looking, but the the military was involved yeah. they had helicopters looking out like it's just like the differences are really obvious like 10 or so people like that's yeah. nothing compared to some of the other cases we've seen or heard of well especially thinking that like most of those are probably her family members you know yes like yes yeah. yeah that's sad James said it would be great to see police agencies unified for the cause of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. He would also like to see families remain at a forefront and know that their loved ones' cases are being investigated. The time of her disappearance, Edna was 5'2", she weighed 170 pounds, she was of Aboriginal descent and had black hair and brown eyes. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Edna Smith, please contact one of the following agencies. F Division RCMP Historical Case unit at 639-625-4111 or toll free at 1-833-502-6861. You can also always call Crime Stoppers. It's 1-800-222-8477. 
The third case we are covering is the one of Shirley Ann Lone Thunder. She was from the White Bear First Nations. Shirley was born on January 3rd of 1966, and she grew up in Saskatoon. She was the oldest of five children. After she grew up, most of the family moved to the White Bear First Nations Reserve. Shirley kind of went back and forth between the reserve and Saskatoon. She was 25 years old in December of 1991 and staying with her mom and her two kids in Saskatoon. She was looking for her own place around this time. It's reported that she had been struggling with a drug addiction. There were also rumors that she was working as a sex worker. Around Christmas of 1991, the Lone Thunder family was getting together in Saskatoon. Shirley's son's birthday was also on Christmas. Shirley's birthday was also around the same time. On the afternoon of Christmas Eve, she went out to go buy him a birthday present. She was last seen downtown Saskatoon, but she would never come back from running this errand. At the time she went missing, Shirley's mom was the main point of contact for the police. Unfortunately, she has since passed away from leukemia. Her brother Stacy said that the last time he was in touch with investigators was sometime in 1997 or 1998. He is interviewed in the CBC article and this is what he has to say. They said they had no report of my sister ever even being in the system and she had a pretty lengthy criminal record and they couldn't find anything on her. Stacy said he wished that the police had started looking for his sister earlier. If you ask him to rate the police investigation overall, he would tell you that it was very poor. I would say the worst ever. I think it was a racial thing or something because every time I tried to talk to anybody, they just basically blocked us out. Stacy said before his mother died, they went to see a medicine man on different occasions and asked about Shirley. They were told many different stories, but here's one of them. One told my mom that Shirley is somewhere between three hills, a community between three hills, maybe mountains. The drugs she's taking made her lose her mind so she doesn't really know what's going on. That's the one I like to believe. You know, I keep hoping that one of these days she'll remember and she'll come home. A Canadian serial killer named John Martin Crawford has been mentioned by authorities as a possible suspect in her case. He was convicted in 1996 of killing three Canadian Aboriginal women in 1992. Shirley still remains missing. I thought this was really interesting. I've actually never heard of John Martin Crawford. So I feel like mm. I have some more research to do because I it's one that I haven't heard of, which is pretty rare. Yeah, I was going to say I haven't heard, but you know, Renee's the one that knows everything. So <laughs> her distinguishing features include a tattoo on her left ankle of a heart and a scar on her left cheek about four centimeters in length. When she disappeared, she was wearing a black jacket, blue jean and white runners. If you have any information regarding the disappearance or the whereabouts of Shirley Lone Thunder, you are encouraged to contact the Saskatoon Police Service at one three zero six nine seven five. Shirley was described as 5'3", 130 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She also had black hair and brown eyes. I was just wondering if we have a definition of what a medicine man is. I know, I was wondering, but this is where it gets tricky. There are so many different indigenous cultures and like giving like one broad definition. I think it can be different for different communities. Yeah. A medicine man is a priest, healer, and spiritual leader of Native American tribes who believes that the physical nature might be brought under the control of man in the person of a medicine man. Between supernatural powers of a man and the medicine man is primary cure for diseases through traditional techniques. But I feel like they have different roles in different communities. Okay, so for our fourth case, we're talking about Naomi Lay Desjardins. There is very little information about this case, like very, very little. This is going to take us maybe two minutes to go over, but that like really stood out to me. So I figured that we would add it to this episode and I don't know, see what comes of it. 
In March of 1987, Naomi was 21 years old. She was last seen on the 25th. Two days later, Naomi's nude body was found in a ditch near the city's dump. She was shot and killed in Regina. The RCMP said at the time that they were hoping to recover some of her clothing. She was wearing a brown coat, black fashion boots, and a black mini skirt, a purple sweater, and black fancy pantyhose. Investigators believe that the discovery of any or all of Naomi's clothes may hold the clue to who killed her. Anyone with any information is asked to call the RCMP detachment at 306-780-5570. That's literally all I could find. As if that's all the information that they have on her. Yeah, and I, I have to say, I didn't go back and look at newspapers.com, but I doubt that there would be anything in there anyway. And I think what stands out for a lot of these cases is family members persevering through all of the tragedy and the trauma that they're living through and pushing forward and keeping their loved one's name out there and in the media and looking mm-hmm. for them and i i don't want to say that naomi didn't have that but it doesn't seem like you know it, it's not like the past cases we've just covered where there's a brother there's a mom there's a sister mm-hmm. who's really out there you know kind of telling their stories and making yeah. sure no one forgets their names so i i couldn't even find a picture of her that makes me so sad Especially the way they found her too. No clothes, by a ditch, uh, or in a ditch, by a dump. Yeah, it's really awful. If anyone has any information, even just for us, that, you know, I wasn't able to find about Naomi, um, or any pictures to something, or if you just want to reach out, we would love to know more about her. And, you know, we hope that her case is solved one day. And finally, for our fifth case today, we are talking about Melanie Dawn Gides. Her last name is spelled G-E-D-D-E-S, so I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. In 2005, Melanie was a 24-year-old mother of three. She was the youngest of four children, and she had been born in Lestock, Saskatchewan. She's described as happy and very generous. She loved spending time outside, looking at the stars. She spent her childhood between George Gordon First Nations and Regina. This was a split based on her divorce parents. She met her partner, Eric Cleveland, in high school. They seemed to others like a nice, happy couple. They eventually had their three daughters, Tiara, Katie, and Chloe. She went missing on August 12th of 2005. She had recently gotten a new job, and her and her sister decided to go out to a house party to celebrate. She was last seen leaving the party around 1am. Her plan was to walk home, and this was just a short walk back to her house. It was only a couple blocks. Unfortunately, Melanie never made it back to her family. It took four months for her remains to be found. Melanie's mom, Valerie, is interviewed in the CBC article, and this is what she has to say. It's hard. Every day I think about it. Every day. A day doesn't go by when I'm not thinking about it. And I'm praying that they would find whoever murdered her. We searched a long time. We had a lot of people come out to support us and to help us search. We searched all over. Melanie was last seen on the 900 block of Robinson Street in Regina's north central neighborhood. In December, four months later, a group of people horseback riding found the skeletal remains of Melanie in a field southeast of Saudi, along the banks of Quapel River. Valerie, her mom, said that she was at the missing women's conference when she got the call to come into the police station. At that moment, I knew. I knew it was her, but I couldn't prove it. I felt it. It just hit me. And I cried. I cried so hard. I remember that. They were finally able to bury Melanie in February of 2006. It's been years since the family has heard from the RCMP. Valerie said, I want her to finally rest in peace, you know? To me, I figure she's still wandering around. She's still looking. But hopefully very soon, the person, whoever murdered her, would come forward so she could rest. 
Her case is currently still unsolved. If you have any information regarding Melanie's murder, please contact one of the following agencies. Regina Police Service Cold Case Unit at 306-777-6500 or Crime Stoppers again at 1-800-222-8477. Obviously, these, these episodes are, I just feel, a lot heavier. It just really puts into perspective how kind of urgent of an issue this is and i don't know how how much is really being done right there five women either murdered disappeared and we have no idea like these are people with lives and families and it's just really hard to wrap our heads around that the families have no answers and probably unfortunately never will yeah and i hate that you know at some point not the family stops looking but you know if there's no tips on what else to look for i can't imagine being in the family's like perspective of hopeless like what do we do now right and even for investigators like i don't know what the answer is but maybe taking more of these reports seriously and Mm -hmm. kind of going like boots on the ground like as soon as you can instead of waiting a little bit and then being like well the case is cold there's no no more information that we can go off of so yeah definitely sooner the better what do they say about like um, kids have, have been kidnapped or whatever? If you don't find them in the first 24 hours or so, 24 hours or yeah. 48 hours or something, you're never going to yeah. find them again. So I feel like for something where it's like a missing person, it needs to be, you know, yeah. acted as soon as possible. And it can be hard for officers if mm-hmm. they're overworked and they have a certain amount of calls a night and they're answering those calls and kind of actively responding to people in need. And then they get a call for a missing person who has a history and it's not like they shouldn't be judged for having a history, but they think like, oh, this person's definitely gonna show up again. But then just thinking that kind of snowballs into all these unsolved cases or doesn't help with these unsolved cases, right? And yeah, it's obviously hard for us to kind of put ourselves in in the officer's shoes that are responding to this and really hard for us to, you know, kind of wrap our heads around how frustrated and just so upset the families must be. But we hope that by talking about these women and, you know, continuing this series on the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada, we can kind of help and maybe participate in the solution. This week, we will be donating to the Native Women's Association of Canada. This is from their website. The Native Women's Association of Canada is a national Indigenous organization representing the political voice of Indigenous women, girls, and gender-diverse people in Canada. Inclusive of First Nations on and off-reserve, status and non-status, disenfranchised, Métis, and Inuit. An aggregate of Indigenous women's organizations from across the country, NWAC, was founded on the collective goal to enhance, promote, and foster the social, economic, cultural, and political well-being of Indigenous women within their respective communities and Canadian societies. If you would like to contribute to Native Women's Association of Canada, the link to donate will be in our description and Instagram TikTok bio. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram, so please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us. And see you next time.